Good morning. It is wonderful to be with you, to see you, to join in worship with you. Have you ever experienced coming before the Lord uh, to pray, to worship, only to feel beaten down by accusations? Perhaps the, the first encouragement of the message today is that you would know if it's happened to you, it, it happens to every believer. Uh, everyone hears the voice of accusation and struggles in how to process that. In our study on the Old Testament book of Zechariah, uh, God is giving a series of visions that affirm his sovereignty and his faithfulness to his people in the midst of tumultuous times. In the vision right before us today in chapter 3, the Lord shows his response to that voice of accusation that we all hear. So Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. To him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts. Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. We have come before your word because we believe it is true and we know that we need it. We ask now that the full impact that you have intended from your word for our lives would be felt and that we would be shaped by it as you intend. So give us grace for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Accusation is a frequent visitor 
to our souls. He reminds us of an ugly sin, even though we've long repented of it, or of an area of struggle that's come up numbers of times in our lives. He may remind us of a a foolish statement made years ago, or even of a recent mess that we're still trying to clean up. But the accuser doesn't stop with what are true sins in our life. He'll accuse us of weaknesses, as though a weakness is something to be ashamed of. He will accuse us uh, of the sins that, not ours, but the sins of our children, as if we're responsible. He will even go as far as to accuse those who have suffered abuse trying to make them feel guilty for that which the abuser alone bears all of the guilt. And the voice that leads these accusations, we learn the passage is Satan. Verse 1, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan is an angelic being who rebelled against God and who hates everything that is of God. Satan is actually not his name. Originally, it is a title. It means adversary. And verse 1 could just as easily be translated as the Satan was standing there at the right hand to accuse him. Satan is what he does. He accuses, he is our adversary, and that title of what he does has become the name by which we know this fallen angelic being. And his hateful heart loves to accuse. In Revelation chapter 12, we're told that he accuses the people of God Day and night, he is persistently seeking to put down and to fill the hearts and minds of God's people with accusation, wanting them to think that it's God's voice that's bringing those accusations. Here he accuses the high priest Joshua. Now, a priest is someone who by office that God gave in Old Testament Israel, a priest was someone who represented the people to God. In Old Testament worship, you couldn't bring your offering a sacrifice directly to God yourself. You brought it to the priest who made the sacrifice and the offering. And the high priest was one particular man among the priests who had a special responsibility where once a year on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the most holy place of the temple where he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And there he was making atonement for the sins of the nation. That sprinkling of blood didn't in reality remove all the guilt of the nation. It was a picture of what God would one day do through Christ, 
But until the coming of Christ, it was an action that kept the people mindful of the seriousness of sin, that sacrifice must be made, a payment must be made. And that was the high priest's responsibility. And here, the high priest is standing before the Lord, and Satan accuses him because he is pictured standing before God in filthy clothes. The word, the Hebrew word translated filthy is the strongest Hebrew word dealing with something that is disgusting. And so it's not just clothing that was dirty, but it's as though his robes were smeared with excrement and he had vomited upon himself. It was revolting, disgusting, filthy clothes that he was wearing. And that picture in the vision symbolized a dual reality. First, that all of the people were sinful. All of them had sins. Because the high priest represented, he went before God, representing the people, making atonement for them. They were a sinful people, and, and he was sinful. Even though Joshua, we know from the rest of Scripture, he was a faithful servant of God. And yet he still had his sin. And so there is an important truth we have before us, and that is filth is an accurate description of sin. All sin is filthy before God. That means our sin is filthy before God. And we, we need to recognize that. Sin is not just a mistake. Sin is rebellious action and attitude against a perfect, wonderful God. The definition of sin is not just the failure of our standards or something people don't like. It is to act against God who is entirely good. And so we have this man representing the people who in fact is a sinner himself. All the people are sinners and sin should be seen as something filthy and yet the Lord rebukes Satan instead of Joshua. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. And then he repeats it, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, meaning the people of God, the Lord rebuke you. Now we've seen this angel of the Lord already. We've seen that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. There is one God who exists as three persons. Forever he has been God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son, who has always by office been God the Son, at one point was born into humanity, the person of Jesus, the Christ who came. But before that birth in Bethlehem, he had always existed as the Son of God. That's who this angel of the Lord is. It is Christ who will come and die for us, but he is the one who is rebuking Satan for accusing Joshua and the people. For Jesus 
never fails to defend his people. He never misses a single opportunity. He defends his people at every turn and against every accusation. But on what basis can he do that? Because the people were sinful. Joshua was sinful. And yet, the Lord says in verse 4 to Joshua, I have taken away your sin. Now, the Lord is not saying, I'm a nice God. Let's just not worry about it. This is awkward and uncomfortable. Let's just forget anything happened. That is not what is being said. And all of Scripture together makes it clear God never has, let's not worry about it, attitude toward sin. Rather, it is God declaring, I have taken care of your guilt. And it is gone. Now that is quite a declaration. We should want to understand how could that be true? What makes that true? And one of the the best scriptures that in a concentrated way walks us through that is in Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at three verses that describe fully how those who indeed are sinners can be cleansed of that guilt to the degree that God himself defends us against any accusation. So Romans 3, beginning with verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, there are a few large words here that we don't normally use in conversations. So What is it that the Apostle Paul means when he writes this? He begins with what we've already seen in verse 23. He states, we're all sinners. So that's that's true of every person in the world. And yet, then he goes on to say in verse 24, there is a gift of grace. Grace is what we don't deserve. So it's not God responding to those who are really good, to those who are sinners, God gives a gift they don't deserve. How does that work? Verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Justify was a legal term that meant not guilty. So if someone was in a court of law and all the evidence was heard and the judge at the end would say, you are not guilty. That person was justified. He was shown to be innocent. So we're sinners. We have this gift of grace that makes us not guilty. And it says, 
through redemption. Redemption is the paying of a payment to release someone. So a price was paid to free us. What we couldn't pay, someone paid for us. And verse 25 completes the explanation of this. We're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus redeems us. He makes the payment, and the payment is his death on the cross, his blood paid. The Bible tells us that life is in the blood, so our blood represents our life. The shedding of blood is the the giving of life, the payment of life to pay for sin. We are accountable to God to pay for sin by death, by the giving of our life. That payment is required. That's the punishment of sin. Jesus is God, born in flesh, became a man, lived a perfect life. He went to the cross, took our guilt, and he died in our place. His blood paying our debt payment. How do we receive this? Verse 25 says, not by good living, not by starting to show up all the time at church or volunteering for good causes. We receive it by faith. Faith is not just believing what is true of God, but entrusting ourselves to that belief. We live in what we believe of God, that He sent His Son to die for us. We live that way. We confess our sin, we call upon Him to forgive us, and we live for Him. By faith we believe. He has done everything to save us. And for those who have entrusted themselves by faith through Christ. God wipes away not only our guilt, but every accusation against us as well. When Jesus paid the payment for our sin, there is nothing left to accuse. It is empty accusation. It is false accusation. But Jesus does more than take our guilt from us. We see in verse 4 that he also then dresses us with new clothes. The angel said to those standing before him, remove those filthy garments. I've taken away your sin. I will clothe you with pure vestments. This description of new clothes is one that's often in Scripture, Old and New Testament, It symbolizes that the sin we had, the the dirty garments, the dirty life, that God puts his righteousness on us. And we are described often who trust in Christ as wearing brilliant, white, clean clothing. And that's what the Lord now says, place this on Joshua who has trusted in me. Now consider this, if Joshua and all who love the Lord are now dressed with this righteousness that belongs to Christ, not our good works, but Jesus' works of righteousness, 
It's as though they belong to us. We're clothed with that righteousness. Will God ever reject the righteousness that is from His own Son? It's not possible that God the Father could reject the righteousness of His own Son when it is on us. And that's how God chooses to see us in the brilliant beauty and glory of Jesus' own righteousness. That's how He now and forever sees every believer. And that is why we, like God, should brush aside accusation. Now, we are called to honor this salvation, this righteousness, by living righteously ourselves the best we can, continuing to strive in it. It's not that it makes us more saved or keeps our salvation, But if God has done this for us, He owes that we would be obedient, faithful people. It's it's what's good. It's what's wise. And we do this to honor God. And it really does matter. In verses 6 and 7, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. Then you will rule my house. I've charged my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. How we live does matter. Again, it it is not keeping our salvation, or we lose it when we sin, and good works are going to get it back. It matters because God rules over whether or not our lives are fruitful. How well is our life used? How purposeful? What does God do through us? And if if we dishonor Him with just a half-hearted obedience, that that affects life and how well it's used. God makes fruitfulness. All fruitfulness comes from God, and God withholds fruitfulness. So someone who thinks, well, God has saved me. It really doesn't matter how I live, but yes, it does. And if we are, if we're really very trite about that, well, I'm saved. It doesn't matter how I live. Uh, We have to question, are you really saved? Because salvation includes the changing of our heart. And if we don't have a heart for God, the desire to follow Him uh, there's a question of whether or not we've really turned to Him and whether or not we've really put our faith in Him. Now, living righteously now is not like a light switch. We entrust ourselves to Christ. He saves us. And now, switch of righteousness on. We just go forward with life without a problem. We, we all know that is not true. Our righteousness is a struggle. Jesus' righteousness, honest, complete, perfect. Ours, which grows throughout our life, is struggle. But even in that struggle, the passage here wants to encourage us, to assure us that our future is we will stand faithful before God. Verses 8 to 10. Hear now, O Joshua, 
the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Behold, on the stone I've set before Joshua, on a single stone, will seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now the passage ends with the picture of what life under God will bring to us. The picture of someone who in, in joy and in the blessing of God is living at rest. They are inviting their friends to it. They are rejoicing in God's goodness. And that is our eternal end. The scripture also speaks of entering eternity as being a feast of God. And so how does that life come? What is our hope that even with our struggles, that will be our future? And so there's two pictures that are given that may at first be a little hard for us to figure out. One of a, a branch and what of a stone? Behold, he says, God is giving us someone called a branch. Now, to those who were hearing this originally from Zechariah would immediately know what that referred to. Decades before, the prophet Jeremiah had spoken of this branch in Jeremiah 33, verse 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and, so, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So the branch is a descendant of David. He sprouts from David's line. It is speaking of the Christ, the Messiah. And the Old Testament had long promised that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And the prophet Jeremiah had spoken of that. But now, decades have gone by, and during that time, the people of God had come under his discipline because of their unfaithfulness. He had caused the Babylonians to come, conquer them, drag them out of the land where they lived in another land for 70 years. And they have now only recently come back to the land. They're well aware of their past and what God had to do. So when the Lord says again, what I had promised years before, I will send my Christ, my deliverer to the people through David, and he will be just and wise and good. And he repeats it, the promise still holds. God remains faithful in every promise. They had not lost the promise of God. And so even through the struggle of the people, God was staying with them at times. He must 
discipline to awaken them, he stays faithful. And so we don't give up because righteousness will prevail. Jesus will make it so. As he makes it so to save us, God will make it so eventually to perfect us. As Pat read at the beginning of the service, those who are justified, it ends up they will be glorified. Well, there's another picture that is even more complicated to understand. In verse 9, there's a stone with a single a single stone with seven eyes. Now, there are a couple of different opinions of this. One is the seven eyes means seven facets, like a jewel cut in this. The seven eyes are seven facets of a beautiful jewel. And the point there would be, again, it is speaking of Jesus. The branch now is a stone, and it's referring to the beauty of his righteousness that is set before us and becomes ours. And that is true, and that would be an accurate description that fits the context. Uh, however, historically, there doesn't seem to be evidence that they actually cut facets on gems at that time. And so another picture that I think fits even better, because it's one that is repeated throughout Scripture, including throughout the New Testament, and when we're trying to understand symbolic language, uh, we do that by looking how that symbolic language is used in the rest of Scripture. And Jesus is referred to as a foundation stone, as a cornerstone, and then the, the description of seven eyes is used uh, a few times to refer to the all-seeing, meaning all-knowing God. And so the picture here, the stone with seven eyes means the foundation stone of our life is Christ, and He knows everything everything. He has perfect good wisdom. And when we stand on him, we're secure and our way is true. So believer, our response to discouragement, our response to failure, our response to accusation is the person of Jesus. He is the answer. Yes, I fail, but Jesus saves me and keeps me and helps me. Yes, I have weaknesses, but Jesus has none. Yes, I've sinned in the past, but Jesus has cleansed me. Jesus is the answer always. And I, there are many times, even this week, even with preaching on this subject, there was a morning when I started to pray, and I just was aware of just failures and weaknesses and unworthiness, and it was hard to even enter prayer. And I just began to think, what is true about Jesus? What has he done? What has he said? And rather than pulling at that thread of accusation, I lifted up the name of Jesus and my heart began to be full with how wonderful he is. Wonderful enough 
for us to take joy, Scripture says, in the God of our salvation. So let's wrap up with some important observations. The first is that accusations against believers come from Satan, not God. Accusations against believers come from Satan. They do not come from God. When God speaks about our sin, and God will speak to our sin, but Scripture uses the language of God convicting us. The Holy Spirit is sent to convict us, meaning God points and shows us this is sin. This doesn't belong. And then he, he prods us to repent of it, to turn and embrace him fully. The voice of God always speaks to our sin with the intention of driving the sin away, not driving us away, but pulling us near. Satan, when he speaks, he accuses to demean us and to put us down and to push us away. And so the voice that is, that is moving you away from God is always Satan. The voice that encourages you to God is always Jesus. And I ask you, which voice should you listen to? Is it not obvious? It is the voice of Jesus. Lift up his voice and the voice of accusation. Pull the curtain away and tell it, I know who you are. And I know what Bi the Bible says, the Lord rebuke you. I belong to Jesus. A second observation is that we don't have to defend ourselves. Jesus does it. What we may not notice at first is Joshua never speaks. He never says a word. Jesus does it. He doesn't have to defend himself. Jesus, no one less than Jesus, is your defender. And he is able. And he is persistent. And eternally... He defends you. And so let us be careful how we accuse ourselves. We are echoing Satan's voice when we start pulling accusation. I'm no good. God must be sick of me. God doesn't want me. We're echoing Satan. We're not echoing Jesus. And in the same way, we should be careful how we speak of other believers because Jesus is their defender. 
We don't want to be echoing Jesus to our soul or echoing Satan to our soul. We don't want to be echoing Satan against other believers either. One last observation. We don't just receive clean clothes, the righteousness of Christ. We're dressed in honor. In verse 5, after the Lord has said, put clean clothes on Joshua, look who speaks. Verse 5, and I said, I mean the prophet Zechariah, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. Zechariah has been watching this, and he has heard the Lord's defense and heard the Lord speak of putting uh, clean garments on Joshua, and in his joy, he just blurts out, and make sure you put a turban on his head as well, because Zechariah was also a priest, and he knew what the high priest wore when he entered into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. He wore a ceremonial turban, and on that turban was a medallion that said, Holy to the Lord. And Zechariah doesn't want Joshua to miss anything of God's goodness. He knows what also belongs there is the declaration Holy be to the Lord, because that's what his life now is. Last weekend, spent it with our grandchildren. We're five, four, almost two. And so you can imagine there was all sorts of pushing and pulling and knocking over and grabbing and swinging things around without paying attention to who you're going to hit in the head. And there were numbers of times we had to step in and say, uh, let's pull apart. They had that. Let's be careful what we're doing. We had to bring correction a number of times. But throughout those days, the joy we took in just watching them, sitting back in a chair, just watching them filled our hearts with joy. And we hugged each of them over and over again. We told each of them how much we loved them. We sang to them, telling my little granddaughter how beautiful she was over and over again. Because that was what was pouring forth from our hearts. And we, wanted, we want them to be surrounded in the knowledge of how deeply we love and cherish them. And God loves you infinitely more than I love those grandchildren. God has deep affection for you. God rejoices over you. When God looks upon you, he has a smile on his heart because he loves you beyond imagination. Child of God, you are precious to your heavenly Father and you're precious to your Savior who died for you. So let's not diminish the love of God. 
Let's not demean it by thinking less of it than it is. Let's push away accusation, not push away the reality of how deeply God loves us. And let us live as people loved by God so that we love him and can love each other. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you for his gospel. And we praise you for this love, this grace poured out. Help us to see it, to believe it, to know it's true, and to live by it. And together we ask for anyone here who does not know that love, who has not entrusted their hearts to Christ, help them to see it's real and receive it today, to call out for you today for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.